I'm going to ask you to um, kind of uh, just bow for a second. And let's just just kind of slow your heart for a moment and, and allow God in this time to maybe speak to your heart in these words. Father, we come before you and we um, thank you that you are a God who speaks with authority and you're incredibly reliable. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, great books usually stand the test of time and they have this kind of ring of authority to them. When you read them, you kind of go, wow, there's something deep. There's something that speaks through it and actually touch the heart and they speak to the soul. And yet there are some books that really don't do that. Some books you can go in. That's that's not going to really make it for a long time. And I just thought I'd share with you a few. Um, They may actually be books. They may not. Anyway, one one hundred and one spotted owl recipes by EPA. Probably won't stand the test of time. Al Gore, the wild years. Different ways to spell Bob. These are the kind of books that probably won't, you know, they don't ring with authority. America's most popular lawyers. Uh, Detroit, a travel guide. Uh, One that, uh, you know, I'm not too sure about this and even how it got into the list, but navigating the Amish phone book um, is one. French hospitality. And a strange companion book to this one is The Art of Tact and Etiquette, The Mansion Years by Jesse Ventura. <clears throat> and here's the number one book that I, I know won't stand the test of time. And I have to apologize before I give it to some of you, but it's uh, The Engineer's Guide to Fashion. Um, you know, the Bible happens to be one of those books that not only stands the test of time, but even grows more popular as it ages actually outselling bestsellers in places you might least expect it. The Bible, the Word of God, has this kind of standing the test of time authority. Recently, in a country where only 1% of its 5 million residents regularly attend church, a strange phenomenon has occurred. Last July, the Telegraph Media News source wrote this shocking headline. Bible outpaces 50 shades of gray to become the surprise hit in what country would you think? In Norway. All you Norwegians. News reporter Sarah Titterton writes, it may sound like an unlikely number one bestseller for any country, but even more so in secular Norway. Yet the Bible, printed in the new Norwegian language version, has outpaced Fifty Shades of Grey to become Norway's most popular book, catching the entire country by surprise. Officials of the Lutheran Church of Norway have stopped short of calling it a spiritual awakening. But they see the newfound interest in the Bible as proof it still resonates in the hearts of people. Isn't it interesting that this book written by so many authors so many years ago, continues year after year to become bestsellers, resonating in the hearts of people. There's an authority to the Word of God that rings true in the heart. And what's really interesting, the Bible itself claims that. The writers of of this Word claim that. In fact, Paul, the apostle, writing to a young pastor named Timothy at one point, wanting to make sure that he was aware of the fact that these Old Testament books of the Bible, because he was writing to him about that, he was writing the Bible as he was writing Timothy, right? 
He writes, all Scripture is God-breathed. Inspired is what that word that you would read. It means it comes from God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And we're going to talk about the authority of God, but to know the authority of God, you have to understand that this word is reliable. You know, it's really tough to take the authority of someone's word if you don't believe in the reliability of it. And what I want to talk about a bit this morning is not so much the Bible in its, in, its, in its wholeness, but specifically, if you cannot hold to the truth of who Jesus is as he's presented in the Gospels, you're going to have problems with the rest of the Bible. But if you can come to grips and say, maybe this Jesus who, who lived this life, who's been reported in the Gospels, is who he says he is, you're going to have to then deal with the rest of the Bible because Jesus says that Old Testament scripture is true. There will not be one jot or tittle that will be missed from it. In fact, Paul writes it and says also, Timothy, you've got to realize this is God-breathed stuff. But how do you really know this life of Jesus, the Gospels, and then the Bible itself is really reliable? We looked a couple of weeks ago about the reach of the Bible, how it reaches throughout the world. And then we, we looked at its basic message last week that it's this with God life. If you were to sum it up in two words, it's with God. It starts from the beginning to the end. To, Today, I want us just to think a bit about the fact that what you have here is authoritative. It's told and it says that if you just begin to listen to and encounter God in his word, you will have through his word the ability to hear his voice. And it is a authoritative source for the way you can live your life, both in its faith and practice. But before you do that, you have to ask yourself, how can I be certain that this isn't just a bunch of cleverly invented stories or a bunch of writings by some theologically biased people who wanted to kind of make Jesus look better than he was and his life a bit more than it really was. And how can I be sure this isn't just a collection of some letters that are written by some people who weren't even close to the time of Jesus? You ever thought those questions? You probably have those questions asked you from time to time. The Apostle Paul and Peter faced similar fears and concerns. They had people all the time when they would go out and they would share about this, who would question this. And so they would have to write about it. So at one point, first Peter, Peter writes in, in his first letter, first Peter one, chapter, chapter one, verses 16 through 21. He says this, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and catch us in power. Isn't it an interesting thing? There's this ad. I'm mean, just to our church. I want you to hear this from again and again. It's, it's not just about being led and be filled by the spirit. There's something about the power. It, 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 we didn't tell you about this, that when Christ came in power, but we were eyewitnesses of the majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And so Peter says, we ourselves heard the voice. That came from heaven when we were on that sacred mountain, Peter, James, and John. And Peter was just amazed. And he heard, and he said, I was there. I'm telling you what's true. This isn't inventive. We also, he goes on to say, have prophetic messages, something completely reliable. The stuff you find in the Old Testament that points to Jesus, you can rely on. In fact, you shouldn't just rely on it. You should pay attention to it, he says. As to a light shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. He's just kind of saying here, he wasn't sitting around going, man, that would be kind of cool. He goes on to make it clear, for prophecy never had its origin in human will. 
Prophets were people who, who as they walked with God, listened to God to such a degree that when God would speak, they had, they had to speak it forth. They weren't sitting around going, now give me another word. So I can make up something. But prophets, through, though human, spoke from God as if they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. And then Paul writes this, because these are the concerns of people. You think these are the concerns of people when you're at the water cooler talking to people about, you know, why do you believe what you believe? And, and you think it may be the concerns that your, your kids will have when they go to college. And let me just share with you, when your kids go to college, some of you, I, I, I'm going to ask you not to get too uptight when they come home. And like, you know, I've had with my kids when they will come home, like I remember one time one saying to me, how do you know this isn't just a bunch? How do you know this is real history? I mean, how can you believe? Are you sure? And, and you know, your tendency is to want to try and prove it all. Let it go. Just say, you know, you know, trust one, the work you've done as a parent. And then the other part is, is be able to, to say, you know, there's lots of good things. You could check that out if you're interested. In fact, look at it this way. When they start the questioning, they're in a process as you pray for them to begin to internalize what you've been trying to teach them. And then pray for them and, and, and help them process through it. Let them dig into it. Because if you really let them dig into it, they'll find what's true. And so he says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you in 1 Corinthians 15 of the gospel I preached to you, to which you received and which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. The whole thing rides on whether Jesus is who he says he is. Rides on the fact that he came and was buried and, and died, died and was buried and was rose again. It all stands on that. And if it doesn't, then your whole faith, our faith is in vain. So he goes on and he says this for what I received. I passed on to you as a first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Those are throwaway words. Those are very important to Paul. And that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. These weren't one, you know, it's okay to have, you know, a vision or somehow a hallucination or something by yourself. But 500 doing it together. And most of them are, in fact, still living. They could refute this stuff we're talking about if you want to just go to them. Though some have fallen asleep. The euphemistic word is they died. And then he appeared to James and then all to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Now, I want to share with you, the New Testament writers, we're not going to look at these in detail as much as we're going to look at their main points. The New Testament writers, what you'll find is they're going to point to three things and three things about Jesus and the Gospels that, that will tell you this is reliable so that it can be a, the authority in your heart and life. This, this has been given to you reliably and they, they, they point to three things. It'd be almost like someone coming to you if your CEO, you heard the CEO gave an order at work and you're going, well, I don't, is that really from him? You're going to ask this. You're going to ask this question. Is it consistent with what's true with the organization, what he said before, how he's directed before? You're going to probably want to know, can you trace it back to someone trustworthy who works close to them, a person of integrity? You're probably going to want to ask the third question. Can I be sure that what was what was said by the CEO has been given to a trustworthy person who is in in life with him and that it's been passed down 
properly transmitted so that I know what's said there really got to me. Do you see those three things? This is what you're going to find in the Word of God. You're going to find this in these two passages that we just read. The first question is this. Does the Old Testament, does the Scriptures point to this Jesus Christ in this life in the Gospels? Is There's this sense of what I call the consistency of the Old Testament. Paul and Peter and the authors of the New Testament are constantly saying, you can tell this is true and this life is true by the very fact that everything that came before it and precedes it is all pointing to Jesus. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, he uses the words according to the Scripture. I received and passed on to you. I made sure that what was given to me was given to you. The first handoff here is exactly what we know because Christ died for our sins according to what we're told in the Scriptures, which is here the Old Testament. And we can know that he was buried and that he, that he was raised from the dead, he says, on the third day, according to the Scriptures. Peter states it this way. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. So pay attention to it. It's not about, you know, from human will, but it's God speaking through them. The Old Testament is this, this scripture that is, in one sense, we said last week, it looks like a bunch of random stories, but the stories are all about the with God life. And the with God life gets summed up in the life of God who comes to live with us so that we can live with him forever. That's what the whole, if you look at the whole um, scripture teaching, and in fact, I could go through this and we don't even, we don't have time at all. But Genesis 3.15, right in the very beginning, right when sin occurs and the curses are, are, are being pronounced, this is what is going to happen because sin has entered the world. In Genesis 3.15, in the midst of a curse, there is this incredible sense of hope stated prophetically. It says, and one will come who will crush Satan's head, and yet this devil will strike his heel. Basically the idea that there's going to be one coming from the line of Adam and Eve that will come along someday, this devil who has introduced sin into the world through these human beings, that this one will crush the head of this one, and yet in the process it will look like his heel has been struck which is a pointing to the cross. And it just begins in Genesis 3.15. You can go through Genesis 22, where Abraham sacrifices his only son. And when he gets done, it says that God provides this ram in place. It says, Abraham, don't sacrifice your son. Because one of the things that people would do in that day and that age, if they really showed sacrifice and devotion to God, was what is most precious to me. And what was most precious to him was his son. And he's going up there, and God, at his point of this, says, don't do it. And then me, Abraham places a name on that place called the Lord will provide, all pointing to the fact that someday one will be providing a sacrifice to take all sins. And then you have the sacrificial system and, and you have um, prophetic... I, I could go on and I'm not going to go into all those, but the whole Old Testament is consistent pointing to Jesus Christ. The second is this, what I call the integrity of the eyewitnesses. You see this in all three passages, in two passages here, but you'll see it in others as well. For we didn't... Follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We also ourselves heard the voice in which Paul himself makes the same kind of statement. He says, you know what? He appeared to Peter and he appeared to the twelve and he appeared to five hundred and a lot of them are still living. 
And I shouldn't rule out some of the other apostles who write here. The Apostle John begins one of his letters, his first letter. He says this in the very beginning of that letter. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This is what we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. Now listen what else he says. We have seen it. He's trying to get this idea across. Uh, listen, guys, I was there. And testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Now, catch this again. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard for this purpose, that you may also be in fellowship with us and him, that you may have a relationship with him. All this is so you can rely on what's been told to you. It's really interesting throughout, you know, the time people are going to write stories. In fact, there's a very um, popular book out uh, in New York Times bestseller right now called Zealot, written by a man named Reza Aslan. And it, it's really, his claim is that Jesus is just another wannabe zealot who was killed, wanted to overthrow the government and just didn't make it. And from that, his followers went ahead and they put all this stuff you know, together and started this kind of new faith where you would suffer and die. Um, well, he doesn't say that, but, but that's really what happens. And, and, and what I find is interesting is that he, he basically has to argue that all the stuff in the Gospels about Jesus are made up decades after Jesus lived by people who did not know Jesus. And he makes the claim that the Gospel writers weren't concerned about factual accuracy. They didn't care about historical accuracy. But that's not how the Gospel writers present themselves or present what they believe. I mean, if you just heard what I read, that you can go on to Luke, who is, who is not himself an eyewitness. So Luke is this guy who grew up in the Harvard of his day, who followed at one point Jesus, and with that um, coming to faith in, in Jesus and following him, kind of attached his life to Paul's and traveled with Paul everywhere. And this is what he writes, because people were wondering, is this really factually true? Now, here's a razor who writes a book that, that becomes kind of a bestseller. You, you get these people every once in a while who write these books, like Dan Brown, who wrote the um, book Da Vinci Code, right? And what's really interesting about a guy like Razor Aslan, who writes this, and, and it is a provocative book, but what's interesting is he's not a New Testament scholar, he's not a historian, he's a creative writer. That's what he teaches in school. And what I find is interesting is you get these books that are written and they, they begin to start saying, well, how can you really believe it? And then you read the Gospels and Luke says this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. This is Luke chapter one to begin his gospel. He's writing this because this question exists right in his day. So they've taken up this, uh, many have tried and they put together the accounts of things just as they were handed down to us by those who are the first were eyewitnesses. So, so we have probably in Luke, probably Mark written before. So he knows there's some of these documents that are being written down of some of the things about Jesus. He says, they were handed down to us, for those who were first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So verse 3, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully invested everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So the question of reliability, even the eyewitnesses are, are basically saying, you know what, we're there, we saw it, we're telling you the truth, we're writing this down, you can believe it. 
Now, what I think is really interesting about this is, is, you know, eyewitnesses, it's a good thing. These these people who are writing this, even the best scholars will will say that maybe it's 50 years away from the death of Christ. And, and if you look at Mark, it really, he wrote that many believe even 20 years from the death of Christ. And, and many of these scholars will kind of question that. But think about this. 50 years ago, let's just give the liberal scholars, because that's what most liberal scholars will say about Matthew, Mark, Luke. And they're written somewhere, at least they will go as far as 70 AD. So you're thinking maybe 50 years, 40, 50 years from Christ. Here's what I think is interesting. 50 years ago, do you know what happened to celebrate Canadian anniversary 50 years ago? JFK was shot. Now, one of the things you can do if you're an eyewitness is you can go back and say, did that event really happen? And if it didn't, people are going to refute it. Did miracles really happen? And so that's his point. He said, look, at guys, I not only have, I mean, if you look at Luke, Luke goes back and he, he had to talk to Mary because you get stories about Mary there. And so here's what's happening. He says, we have eyewitnesses who can account for this. And one of the things I was thinking about this is I was kind of preparing this and thinking about it. When you have eyewitnesses, it's one thing you can, can begin to start thinking, are these eyewitnesses credible? Why would they? I just tell you, what, what person in their right mind is going to do some of the things these eyewitnesses who saw Jesus were impacted by his life would do? How in the world do you have a faith that would grow out of a dead Messiah who is written by a bunch of people years ago? How would this thing blossom to where it is today? And I, I look at some of the um, the apostles, and, and I was talking to um, a couple in our church, Sammy and Suda. Some of you have maybe met them. They're from India, and they're and, and Sammy's working with um, Best Buy. And I was talking to them in the lobby last Sunday, and they were sharing with me that they come from e- the southern eastern part of India, and and where they come from is the place where it's believed that Thomas was was actually martyred in that area, and then he's interred. His, his burial place is there. And so I was working on this message, and I thought, oh, that'd be interesting to look it up. So I thought I'd look up where it was, which is where Mylapore, Chennai. And, and on a map, it, you find that when, when Thomas goes there, and if you can see this, there over here, you see the, the circle there in yellow going all the way over here. What would make a guy called Doubting Thomas... Make that trip to a bunch of people he doesn't know who probably are doubting him as well. Travel that distance so that he can be... Because it always happens when you bring this message. There are some priests there who didn't like the message. It tells us at a point that he was run out in different places in India. And eventually there he was actually, with, they believe, four lances stabbed to death. What would make a guy do that? It... it it just doesn't make sense. And so that's what they appeal to is the reliability of these eyewitnesses. And then, and then I want to share with you the next part is not only do you have eyewitnesses, and you can actually credibly look at these, these studies much further than this. And then what I'm doing right here, I'm just kind of just touching the surface of it with the time we have. But the, the third thing that the apostles and, and those writers of the New Testament talk about is, is the reliability of what I call a handoff. So, so not only does all the Old Testament point to this, and you can do the study and look at it, not only then do you have eyewitnesses who are actually who, who, who would write these things and they would you know, put those down in, in writing, and then 
you would have what you can talk about is the reliability of the handoff. The, the hope was this, that somehow it wasn't fumbled from handoff to handoff. And there's a lot of pop culture ideas around this. And, and so I'm just going to go through a few of these in just the moments we have. And I, I won't be able to get into as much as I'd like to. But let me just share with you, because people say it's a bunch of legends. It's written not by really eyewitnesses or written much later than that. It's, they're just embellished stories. So the first one I, that I would say a lot of is what I call pop culture idea that this handoff really didn't happen well is around this what they call their false witness account, not eyewitness testimonies. A lot of people, they're, just, they're really just false witness accounts. And I could share with you a few, but I'm just going to share this little truth. What is interesting to note is that in the first 400 years from the time they were written, those first 400 years, there were no competitors to the gospel. No one said these were wrong. No one disputed that they were written by anyone else than the ones who said they wrote them. And what I find is interesting is around the year 200, because you would think if you really wanted a gospel to be something that you would find credible, you'd use a name that, that would, would be attached to it. You'd go, wow, that's a person. You know, the only one really is the gospel of John. But if you look at the gospel of Mark and you look at the gospel of Luke, they're not necessarily themselves eyewitnesses. Mark writes for Peter, who's an eyewitness, and attaches his name to it. And you see Luke, who gets all these eyewitness accounts and puts it into an orderly history. And Matthew's the only other one. But he's a tax collector. Who's writing to Jews? So why would you put his name there? But what you find around the year 200 is this. Guess what? The Gospels that are written around the year 200, whose names they put to it? The, the, the names that they put to it are the Gospels of, of James and Peter and Mary and Philip. and you, You'd put those names to it, and that's exactly what they did. So you see, and I could go into that. There, another is their legend. They're not really true history. And, uh, and, and Karen Armstrong, in a, in a popular book called The History of God, makes this claim, we know very little about Jesus. The first full-length account of his life was St. Mark's Gospel, which was not written until about year 70, some 40 years after his death. And by that time, historical facts had been overlaid with mythical elements. Sounds reasonable, right? But there's a couple difficulties with this. First, the evidence points to the fact that Mark was probably written in the 50s, 20 years after death. But even if you go to the 70s, which almost every liberal scholar will say is true, you still have people who are living who could refute it. And what you find also is there's a word in, in history called multiple attestation. If there's more than one person who's an independent source, so not just one person telling it, but you have independent sources talking about it. And what's even greater, if they're not just people who are believers, but people who are outside of it attest to it. And you can find that there is multiple attestation to the life of Jesus, even to the many things he that he's done. You can find it in Josephus. You can find it in plenty of younger Tacitus. It's even in the Talmud. And, and one scholar, his name, um, he's from Miami University, Edwin Yamamuchi, says we would know this even from outside sources, not followers of Jesus, just from outside sources, that Jesus was a Jewish teacher. We would know, second, that many people believed he performed healings and exorcisms. Third, that some people believed he was a Messiah. Now, these are not just believers. These are people outside of it are attesting to this. Fourth, he was rejected by Jewish leaders. Fifth, we know he was crucified under Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. Sixth, despite a shameful death, his followers who believed he was still alive spread beyond Palestine so that there was, in, by, by the year A.D. 64, there were multitudes of followers of Jesus in Rome. What accounts for that? 
and Sabbath. All kinds of people from cities and the countryside worshipped him as God. These are outside sources. And the second difficulty is this. The fact that they're not legend, but they're really true history. You know, they want to say it's legend. Here's the second. Compared to every other ancient biography, whether religious leaders or merely important personages, the Gospels hardly have any distance from the time of the life of Jesus to the time it's written. The two earliest biographies of Alexander the Great, they're written 400 years after his death, and they're considered authentic. The Gathas of Zoroaster are believed to be authentic. They're written 1,200 years later. The scriptures of Buddha were not written down until some 700 years after his life. Even Muhammad, who is really considered the prophet of Islam to be a more contemporary, modern person. I mean, the reason modern is used is because there's actual history written now, not oral history. He lived around 600 A.D., but his biography in the Koran is not written until 767 A.D., some 100 years after his death. So when you think about it, whether the Gospels were written 20 years or 50 years after the death of Christ, the amount is really pretty negligible because in that period of time there were still eyewitnesses living. And when you compare it to what's accepted everywhere else, it just seems kind of silly, right? So you get kind of, you know, your kids or you get afraid, well, you know, it's legend. That's true history. You can, you can do the work on it. And some people say it's embellished. They're not actual events and words of Jesus. Everyone's looking for the historical Jesus. Can we find behind the gospel um, something about who the Jesus is? You've heard about this. If we could just kind of locate and they, they kind of go on and they say, you know, it's all embellished. Okay, it's nice, but it's like the game telephone. You ever played the game telephone? You start out and you say one word and you say it to this person, that person says the next person, next person says the next person. And so what started out to be just the lines, you're my best friend, you get to the end and it's, you're my brutish fiend. And everyone laughs. Oh, that's not what it was. Well, that's really what happened, they say. It's just an embellishment, okay? It's just got kind of, you know, when Jesus talked about that people would see, he was talking about spiritual sight, and they just went ahead and embellished it until finally you had stories of Jesus healing guys physically so they could see with their eyes. Or when Jesus talked to the apostles, he said to them, you know what, I'm going to die, but my spirit will rise up in you someday, and you will live like I lived became merely embellished, so eventually people started saying, yeah, this is Jesus. He told his disciples he would rise from the dead, and that's the stories. What I find interesting about this is that, first of all, you don't understand oral tradition. Oral tradition in that culture, in that day, especially when you're handling something both religious, thinking it's the Word of God, when you handle that oral tradition, you don't handle it lightly. You make sure that the message given here, given here, given here, is the same. So within that time period where there was oral tradition, and this is not long, you know, because again, it's only 20, possibly 50 years, you have to understand oral tradition is people are going to, with reverence, make sure that message gets said to the next person. One Old Testament scholar says it this way, one oral um, historian says it this way, if you, are really, if you really wanted to develop the analogy of the game of telephone to what it would have been like in the first century community, with all its checks and balances... You'd have to say that every third person would have to out loud in a very clear voice, go back to the first person and say, is that correct? And if it isn't, you'd change it. And besides oral culture, let me just give you another one. We soon get into a written culture. 
Don Byerly, in a book called Surprise by Faith, says that this is a great comparison. I'm just going to let you see this on the board in a graph sense. There's 5,300 actual manuscripts in the original Greek language, 1,900 in the Latin and Syriac and Armenian, 24,000 handwritten copies of the New Testament survive. F.F. Bruce, a British scholar, says no other body of ancient literature in the world enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. And that's what it looks like compared to every other acceptable book. And yet people will say it was embellished. And then there's this idea of it's whether it's contradictory. You know, you can't believe it because if you look at the New Testament, just read the New Testament. It's full of contradictions. You heard that before? And it's just, you know, they're contradictory, not factual happenings. And I, I love what there's a guy named Simon Greenleaf, who is of Harvard Law School. He's uh, an important historical um, figure in, in legal work. He is the author of a brilliant treatise on evidential law, meaning this, that after you would study things, you'd you'd look for the evidences. And he says this about the the, um, gospel writers. He says, there is enough of a discrepancy to show there could have been no previous concert among them. And at the same time, such substantial agreement is to show that they were all independent narrators of the same great transaction. Every historian is especially skeptical at the moment when extraordinary happenings are reported in such a way that they're free of any contradictions. Isn't that interesting? So here's what I was thinking about, because I was reading this week in my own quiet time, and I'm reading about blind Bartimaeus. It's read, I read it in Mark chapter 11, and I think it's 10, or I think the end of 10. And, and as I'm reading it, I, I, I'm doing you know, my thoughts and study on it. And Matthew and Luke, Mark and Luke say there's blind Bartimaeus who was healed as he went into Jericho. Matthew says two blind people were healed. And they kind of go, there's a discrepancy, there's a contradiction. And this is really how almost all of them are in the New Testament. And I thought about it in our day. Could you imagine this? For the purposes of of understanding this, in an account, someone's reading a a few months from now, in some accounts in the paper, and in, in, in an account, someone writes, head coach Leslie Frazier named Josh Freeman as the starting quarterback. And we go, oh, that's interesting. And then someone else goes, I was reading an account, and that person states that head coach Leslie Frazier has announced starting quarterback would be Christian Ponder. How can that be? It's a contradiction. You can't believe anything about the coach Leslie Frazier days, right? And I think we all know who's right, right? We know that earlier on, Josh Freeman was made the quarterback, and then there was a head injury thing, and then there's what? Christian Fonder. And is it possible that one person was writing about an account and using something in his argument and had no need to share about the second? That happens all the time in the Gospels. And then some say they're biased. And I'll make this quick. I know we're just over, but I'm going to just share the last part. They're biased. Some will say not pure accounts. Did the author's biases color their work? Were they, were they writing with a theological bent towards a purpose? So let me just... Um, share this with you. It would be foolish for me to disagree that they're not writing with a theological bent. In fact, obviously, those who wrote about Jesus loved Jesus, and they weren't neutral observers. They were devoted followers. 
And you might think that they would try and change things to make Jesus look good. But on the other hand, think of it this way. When you regard someone really highly and you're a person of integrity, you're going to do all that you can to write with great integrity. One scholar writes it this way. In the ancient world, the idea of writing dispassionate, objective history merely to chronicle events with no ideological purpose was unheard of. Nobody wrote history if there wasn't a lesson to learn from it. And he goes on to share this analogy with regard to the Jewish community and the Holocaust. Think about this for a second. There are some people, usually for anti-Semitic purposes, who are trying to deny or downplay the horrors of the Holocaust, right? Anybody heard this, right? And he goes on and says this. This has led some Jewish eyewitnesses and scholars to actually go ahead and create museums and write books and preserve artifacts and document firsthand accounts concerning this horrific time in history. Obviously, they have an ideological purpose, namely to ensure that such an atrocity never occurs again. But they also have been the most faithful and objective recorders and researchers of this historical truth because they have a desire that people know what really happened. So in a similar manner, even though biased, as some may say, or not objectively neutral, which who is as a historian ever objectively? Who is objectively neutral? The writer sought to, as accurately as possible, record the historical claims that God uniquely claimed and entered into this this place in space and time and history as Jesus of Nazareth so that you and I could reliably know that what's here is accurate and true. So some of you are in a place you made to read it. You you know, I've had trouble with the authority of God's word. I just encourage you, you can look at it and encourage you to do so. I also want somebody to think about it. You might be right now in your life. Think about this. You're going... God, I don't know. I, mean, I can't trust you with what's going on right now. And I, I just want to use this analogy. If he was so sure and so committed to getting this right so you could actually have it, you can rely on God right now in your place of need, wherever you're at. God is here for you. And then I just want you to think about one last thing. If God went to such pains to make sure you could see the life of Jesus in the Gospels and understand the Word of God in His wholeness is something authoritative for your life and practice, I ask you, like I said last week, are you taking time to meet with Him to get to know that Word? It can inform your life. Next week we're going to look at how this Word can actually influence your life. I encourage you to be a part of that.